This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Just around the corner, spring will thaw the lakes. Mud and slush will give way to fresh tendrils of grass and the unspooling of ferns. Birds will return, along with bugs and sleepy critters and cattails on the pond. Northern Michigan fiber artist Nancy McRae will be at her loom, capturing the essence and vibrancy of these moments all along the way. Okay, what should I weave? Well, I can't ignore what's happening around me. I can't ignore how I feel about what's happening around me. Her home and studio are east of Traverse City on a quiet inland lake. One can quickly see it provides the precise ethereal environs that are required for these dreamy three-dimensional landscapes that Nancy weaves. When I initially moved here, it was hard for me to leave the house. I would look out the window and there'd be a dock for crying out loud. And then there'd be another duck, oh, and a swan, and look at those birds, and oh my goodness, you know, the lake is doing something weird again. Lapping waves of turquoise, azure, and cerulean are reflected on a piece at Nancy's studio window overlooking the lake. A rickrack-like wave of whitecaps strikes through the bottom third of this tapestry, still in progress. A similar work in the making on yet another loom gives the impression of pine branches spliced together. Yarns of a pale chartreuse dart into an ever-deepening center woven with forest and smoke. Small keyhole notches are left open all throughout the piece, giving peeks to what lies beyond. Yeah, I have another piece I want you to see. Another piece that catches the eye is hanging on the wall, this one complete. It's called Blood Breath. And it's an abstract tapestry with a river system of cyan wending its way from the top down, greeted by a red spiral of mahogany jam. Broken, yet forceful, opening ever upward. It's a piece that just feels deeply personal in the viewing of it. Weaving takes time. It's an artistry of long-form patience and vision. Nancy models her works on paper to create roadmaps for her finished products. Her studio is light and airy, lined by meticulously organized fibers. Her dogs, Lucy and Desi, are constant companions. But it is her students who really fill this space beyond day to day. It's around these looms in her studio that Nancy continues the legacy of mentorship in fiber arts. And my favorite form of teaching is mentoring, in which, the student maybe already has some ground underneath her, but needs a little encouragement, a little push, a little technical information to get to her next stage. So that's my very favorite role as a teacher is to take someone from where they are and help them go to wherever their next step is. Um, frequently, a student knows she wants more, And I usually, I say she because by large, the vast majority of them are women. When I'm at the loom, I I follow my instincts. But when I'm not at the loom and when I'm talking about fiber arts and I'm teaching others about fiber arts, I'm very aware of this long legacy that we have. I'm fascinated by colonial women, the women who spend themselves literally to death during the Revolutionary War, the people who um, documented history through tapestry weaving, the Egyptians who invented weaving. Um, all All of that 
fascinates me. Though Nancy's work has changed with her environment, teaching has followed her to northern Michigan. Her work in bringing along the next generation of weavers began when she lived in and ran a fiber arts shop in East Lansing. The storefront stayed behind, but the practice of teaching followed her to Williamsburg, which is where we sat down with her on her porch. Nancy McRae, thank you for having us out here. It's uh, it's really a joy to be in your studio and at your house. Thanks for thanks for inviting us. Oh, thank you so much for coming. I'm delighted. This discipline is a really old one and one that started practical and has come to mean a lot of different things. What was it about weaving? Why did this get its hooks into you on such a psychological level? I wish I knew. Throughout grad school, it's like why don't I why why am I not a painter? Because in my mind, I well, I took painting classes. I knew that if I put the effort into painting that I wanted to put into fiber, I'd be good. I would have been a great painter. But um, no, it always called me back. Even now you saw that I have uh, materials for many different types of art form. And I do like to take little vacations and I play with it. And I have a lot of fun. And then it's back to work. This is This is the work that I need to do and I don't know why uh, the art the critic Jerry Saltz has said that artists don't get to choose what kind of artist they are and I that really resonated with me because I don't feel like I chose it we came here because we wanted to see your space where the looms sit and where we can sort of see the colors that are that are forming in your head but it really seems impossible to talk about your work without talking about this place, the land that your house is on, the view of the lake, the trees that you see on these walks. Tell us about the transition time when you were coming here from East Lansing and what that brought up in your work. Um, my, my work in East Lansing, my artwork in East Lansing, followed selling the shop because Prior to that, I really didn't have time to do that work. Um, prior to that, my inspiration actually was my daughter's. I don't know if you noticed the portraits on the on the wall. Uh, one of them was a friend of my daughter's, and another one is my daughter. And I just I became totally fascinated with teenage women because they were clearly becoming women. And it was at that moment, moment of their becoming that I was trying to kind of capture what, how they're filled with confidence and anxiety all at the same time, how unaware they are of what the challenges and the dangers are. And I, I was trying to capture that in those weavings there. So, so that was like a figurative... Yeah. You know, time in your work. And I mean, the things you're doing now are just completely different. They're more land-based and more abstract. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I think that I have always woven the thing that is filling my heart at the moment. After I sold the shop, I was concerned that it, that I might not start weaving, even though I had given up this thing I loved for this. I was really concerned that I just wasn't gonna, you know? So I got, there was, I had a loom in my closet that had a warp on it and I thought, okay, I'm just going to weave. I'm just, I, 
again. So I sat down and I started to weave. And then it occurred to me that I should do a series of weavings that are in that way where I would just sit down and start to weave. And I did a series of about eight over the course of two years. And because they were very intuitive, um, I learned an awful lot about myself. There was one where I started just a very plain background with some dark diagonal lines going through it. And then some, then that followed by some white diagonal lines going through it in a different direction. And it started to look sort of like a mountain pass. And what was going on at that time is um, my brother-in-law died. And that brought in the darkness, I think. And my grand, my first granddaughter was born. So that brought in the lightness. And then when I got to the very top of that piece, I was uncertain about how to finish it. And I put in a strip of bright blue. I just knew that that was the thing. And after I put that in and looked at it for a minute, I realized that what I had woven was a, a pass that I had hiked over many years ago when I was camping in Colorado. But it wasn't until I put the blue in that I knew what it was. And so, you know, pairing those thoughts that I was having about my brother-in-law and my granddaughter, and then it all came together with a mountain pass, just taught me a lot about who I was and where my head was. We need to take a quick break. More in a minute. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's Stateside Podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Your studio is also a place where you welcome other other artists in and teach them things. Um, would you say? I think I heard you say that most of the most of the students you work with don't have a studio space like this that they're just sort of making wherever they can. Is that did, is that right? I I'm not sure. I um, that probably was true when I was teaching at NMC because those would be folks that are responding to the the catalog and they're interested in maybe trying this. The students that I have been working with now have to seek me out and they tend to be a little more locked in to really exploring weaving in depth. I'll welcome anyone who comes at any level to work with me in my studio, but what the, the students that I'm working with now tend to be um, 
definite in their desire to pursue it. So one of my students has this room that she calls her Chick Palace, and she has <laughs> she has um, outfitted it with everything that she needs, and she, she claims that she has, like, yellow caution tape so that her husband cannot come in. <laughs> It's her room. I love that. I'm I'm a big I'm a big fan already. That that very, sounds great. Very Virginia Woolf. <laughs> that voice you hear is stateside executive producer Laura Weber Davis, who says this idea of having a space to create is very Virginia Woolf, like a room of one's own. For sure, yeah. one's own. <laughs> well, in fact, you know that's a piece of advice that I will often give to someone who. Um, is an artist or developing their art skills and I will say you must have your own room you don't it doesn't have to be a room it has to be a space though and it has to belong to you and it has to be respected how was that always the case for you were you always able to make at least a corner for yourself and your work oh yes yes I was it, throughout having you know a family and lots of pets and a husband and a house that was sort of designed for entertaining others, what have you, I had a space. Some, a lot of the time it was in the basement. What happens to the work when the artist doesn't have a space like that? I think that uh, it just is such a challenge. And I'm afraid that a lot of people don't overcome that challenge. That's why, I, that's why I really admire the artists that make it work somehow. It's just way too easy to say, I, it's too hard. I can't do it. I don't have a space. I have to clean up every time I get my stuff out. The craft disciplines are such that they're things that people have always made because they needed the finished product. Mm -hmm. But today, we can also make because of the way it makes us feel or the mental space it puts us in. Um, do you think, do you see your students, you know, finding ways to value that, whether or not they can actually bring their dreams to life of having a space and producing the work that's in their heads? Um, absolutely. I, you can buy a really adorable towels or sweaters at Target for so, so much less than you could possibly make it for, even if you don't count your time. So I believe that the primary reason for makers now is that sense of self-satisfaction, the sense of um, the space you can get into, the pride that you can have from something that you've made. These are all really important reasons to make. And as I've been sitting here thinking a little bit more about having your own space and the importance of that, I think that you can create that space psychologically. You can know that what you're doing is valid and valuable, even if it's just because it keeps you sane and keeps you going. It's important, if that's an important thing for you to do, it's important that you do it. And what that means is that you guard your creative time and space. Even if it means that you have a corner on the couch and you have this half hour, you guard that. What politics do you see baked into fiber arts and some of the other contemporary craft discipline? I mean, these are things that men have certainly done over the millennia, but largely have been a, f a female domestic space. I think it's I think it's pretty it's pretty interesting. Observers, not participants, in the fiber arts, 
often think that the artist was attracted to it because of being female. Now, there are plenty of male fiber artists, and, you know, they do suck up a lot of the oxygen, actually. But um, I remember talking with a, when I was in grad school, talking with this woman, her name is Suzanne Lacey, a performance artist, and she taught at the College for Arts and Crafts in California, San Francisco. And I remember her saying to me that she thought that women went into the fiber arts because they didn't have the courage to be a painter. Oh, I know. I reacted very, very badly to her saying that. And I remember thinking, I probably didn't say it out loud to her, but I remember thinking, no, I know that I could develop into a competent painter. I I could actually make a career out of painting. I have no choice but to be this fiber artist because that's where I'm being dragged to. But it's a much trickier path than the traditionally accepted forms. We, we keep making incremental progress in having the fiber arts taken more seriously as fine arts. Um, conceptually, fiber art has a lot to offer beyond painting. With painting, you're sort of, forgive me painters, you're limited to your two-dimensional space and the shapes and the colors that you put on it. And you can say an awful lot in that format, but with fiber art, you can lift it off the wall. You can use the metaphors of interconnections and intersections and layering much more readily. So the fiber arts have a lot of hidden power in them that you can't access with any other media. Fiber art still has a lot of barriers to break down and the only way we're going to do that is by getting it out into the world. Nancy McRae, it's been really great visiting you here. Thank you for having us. Oh, thank you so much for coming out and and, um, listening to me. And that's the Stateside Podcast. I'm April Baer. If you're looking for more stories, you should check out the full stateside episodes that are available for streaming at michiganradio.org. Today's pod was produced by Laura Weber-Davis, our executive producer. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Cabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our podcast editor is Rachel Ishikawa. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in your feeds tomorrow. Bye-bye. I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! 
We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.